0: A Marvel horror podcast. I am the tomb's proprietor, Headstone P. Gravely. And here I are two captive hosts, Shrey Lawson and
1: James Hickson. Hello everybody. You're listening to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. I'm Trey Lawson. I am Groot. No, you're not. I am Groot. You were not plant-based when we got locked in here. I am Groot. Well, folks, this is going to be a really interesting podcast. I apologize in advance for the summaries.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm James Hickson. There we go. <laughs> it's weird. I thought I was the monarch of Planet X for a second there.
1: You know, that, that does tend to happen. Uh, it's understandable.
0: Anyway, this episode of Tomb of Ideas, we'll be talking about Tales to Astonish number 13, featuring a certain plant-based life form, as well as Marvel Spotlight number 3, featuring a certain werewolf-based life form, Tomb of Dracula number 2, featuring a certain vampire-based life form, and Astonishing Tales number 13, featuring yet another certain plant-based life form. Hmm.
1: Yeah. Interesting.
0: A different plant based life form, not the same one.
1: Right, right. Um a a returning plant based life form in this case. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's man thing. Guys, it's man thing.
1: Yeah, there's gonna be a lot of man thing on this show. Just FYI.
0: Oh yeah. I'm sorry, was that inappropriate?
1: I mean, maybe. Eh. Accurate though. Yeah,
0: very accurate. We'll be right back after these messages.
1: New Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy, Dancing Groot. Plays and dances to his own music. I am Groot. A a and your music too. The one and only Dancing Groot from Hasbro. Other figures and masks each sold separately. customs out for sale.
0: Our first issue this week is our shameless movie tie-in. Tales to Assange number 13. I challenge Groot, the monster from Planet X. Cover date November 1960. Writer is Stan Lee. Artist is Jack Kirby. Inker is Dick Ayers. Our story opens with biologist Leslie Evans and his nagging wife Alice driving home from a party. Alice is praying Leslie for not being as manly as the other men at the party when they are interrupted by a flaming object falling from the heavens and crashing with a luminous explosion in the nearby woods. Leslie wants to investigate, but Alice complains that she's too tired from the other men and wants to go home. Days later, Alice is complaining, big surprise, about missing wooden fences and trees around the town. Acting on a hunch, Leslie goes out into the woods and discovers a wooden alien giant named Groot it is calling nearby wooden objects to himself and absorbing them into himself to allow him to grow in size. Leslie goes to the local sheriff who doesn't believe him until another townsperson comes in and tells him that the monster is heading for the town. A gun-toting posse is quickly formed, but they quickly learn that conventional weapons are useless against a wooden creature. Groot then announces his intentions to transport a town to his home planet in a net of connecting trees for study. Groot then commands the nearby woods to uproot themselves and begin to put his plan in motion. Meanwhile, Leslie, the biologist, stinks off to his lab to devise mankind's last-ditch weapon against the monarch of Planet X. That weapon a box of termites spread by Leslie in his lab. The termites quickly attack Groot, who screams in agony as he dies. Meanwhile, Alice apologizes to Leslie for being a fool and promises she'll never complain again.
1: Groot is really talky.
0: Yeah, Groot, Groot certainly has a more extensive vocabulary here than he does in any of the Marvel movies.
1: Yeah, downright verbose.
0: Indeed. Like, let's see if I can get a good example of that from the story.
1: I mean, even just the cover. Behold, I am Groot, the Invincible. Who dares to defy me? That's like seven or eight words more than the Groot we know is capable of speaking.
0: Right. And I think when we first see him again, when the Guardians of the Galaxy come back in Annihilation, even then he does have that wider vocabulary
1: right and, and i think they later explained it that as groots get older um their vocal cords harden and their vocabulary becomes lesser
0: i thought that it was just that he got destroyed and suffered brain damage so i guess that is a little less sad
1: I suppose. I, I have to admit, I have not read a whole lot of the Cosmic Marvel stuff, like the Annihilation Wave and, and the things that spun out of that. I've read bits and pieces of it, but a lot of what I know from that comes from, like, summaries that filled in the gaps of stories that I missed.
0: Right. Um, Some other things... I, I hate Alice in the story.
1: Well, I, she's written to be sort of a nag... In a very sort of 1950s, 60s kind of way.
0: I suppose. Um, But, like, she passes up a chance to go investigate a flaming object from the skies because she's too tired.
1: Yeah, well, and and let's, like, that whole thing, couple driving home at night, mysterious object falls from the sky into the nearby woods. How many sci-fi films have started that way?
0: Yeah, and I'd just like to note for a second that Leslie and Alice are the spinning image of Dennis Diminis' parents.
1: <laughs> that is funny.
0: And considering this happens after Dennis Dennis has already been on newsstands, I can only imagine they just abandoned him somewhere.
1: Right. That, that would... His presence would have made this a very different story.
0: Extremely different. For one thing, I'm pretty sure Harvey comics would sue them. It was Harvey that had Dennis, right? I
1: believe so, yes. Um... And also, like, uh, Groot is identified at one point by the biologist as a creature of wood who feeds on wood. D- does that make Groot a cannibal? Or is it different because he's alien wood and this is earth wood?
0: <laughs> I, uh, I'm sorry, I'm apparently 13 years old. Um, but I, I feel it's more like he's absorbing them into himself. I don't think it's, like, he chomp-chomp-chomps on him or anything like that, so I don't think it counts as cannibalism. Okay. I think it's just, like, he's absorbing him into himself to gain mass, and they're becoming part of him. Yeah. Kind of like how, like, Sandman, you know, if you, if anybody ever tries to fight Sandman in the desert, he becomes giant. Right. Which is just a stupid place to fight Sandman, but, right. you know, so it I guess if
1: you're fighting Groot in a forest, then... You're in trouble.
0: Right. However, I'm going to notice, note something. Groot is surrounded by trees. Yes. And yet he's calling wooden objects from the town to him.
1: Right. As opposed to even, just, like, absorbing the trees that are right there next to him.
0: Yeah, and they even comment that he's uprooted trees from people's yards and stuff. Right. So, he obviously can uproot trees.
1: Well, and, I mean, even more broadly speaking... Groot's plan doesn't make much sense. The trees okay. are going to form a net to ensnare the town, and then somehow the trees are going to fly into space. Like, I... No. No.
0: One quick note before that. Does the absorbing wood aspect come back again in any future appearances of this character?
1: I... Not that I'm aware of. That That's not to say it hasn't happened. But that, that doesn't seem like part of the power set of the Groot that has become popular.
0: Right. It's not like dancing, which we know he does.
1: Right. Or even just the sort of, like, he can cause himself to, to grow and shift and things like that. That happens in the movies. Now, according to Wikipedia, his power set still includes absorbing wood as food and the ability to control trees.
0: Okay, then. I guess it's just not something that comes up often in the movies because... That he doesn't encounter that many trees.
1: Yeah, I, I guess. Okay.
0: Um, so, yeah, the plan is kind of stupid, considering the fact that the minute they break atmosphere, everybody in that town is going to die.
1: Right. Because tree, like, a net of trees would not be airtight.
0: No, it would not create a pressurized atmosphere.
1: Um, but also, when we get that sort of glimpse at uh, Planet X, where, where they're going to be taken... Um, it looks like Groot's people must get their Bottled City technology from the same supplier as Brainiac.
0: It's, you know, Bottled City wholesale. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they advertise on Space Cabby.
1: But here's another thing that I just. <laughs> this story raises so many questions. Um, the wood is too tough to burn. Like, he, he's. Groot's wood is too tough to burn. That's not a real thing.
0: No, it isn't. I mean, I can get it if, like... No, I can't get it.
1: <laughs> well, And, I'm and crying, also, but... the wood is too tough to burn, but termites can eat through it.
0: Exactly. I am pretty sure that fire is more fearsome than termites.
1: Right. Right. Um,
0: maybe, maybe he has, like, a harder outer shell of hardwood and, like, an inner shell of softwood. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, that's the best no prize explanation I can think of.
1: One thing that is worth noting, I think, and I, I can't, I don't have any proof of any causal relationship between these things, but Roger Corman's The Little Shop of Horrors came out two months before this cover date. Okay. And I think was being shopped around to studios and festivals and things even before that
0: okay that that kind of makes sense, and the fact that Marvel will jump on any idea if they think it's gonna be popular. right.
1: well, and even I mean the even uh, the thing from another world, the old uh, sci-fi movie from the fifties, um, in that version of the story, uh, the monster is plant- based. so like th- there is this sort of weird subgenre of plant based sci-fi monsters that that they're kind mm-hmm. of drawing from here,
0: okay. I kind of feel like the story had to be written as a joke. <laughs> like, Stan had a fight with Joan or something and decided to go to the office and write a story about a nagging wife.
1: That That is such a weird part of this story. Like, it's... Because it doesn't really add to the plot. Mm-hmm. Um, but But it does give it this weird moral of... Or message of hey, don't forget, scientists can be manly men, too. Like, that seems <laughs> to be the message of the end of the story.
0: Which is interesting, because this is a few like like, maybe two or three years. Well, not not really. Maybe, like, one year before Fantastic Four number one comes out? Because
1: this is November 1960.
0: Okay, let me check when Fantastic Four number one comes out. Fantastic Four, number one, came out November 1961. Okay, so so about exactly a year. year.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. So there we get Reed Richards, who, at least in his earlier appearances, at least when Jack Kirby was drawing the book, was this kind of manly man scientist.
1: Yeah, like it was was like the two-fisted reporter character, but instead he's a two-fisted scientist.
0: Exactly, and I think it's later writers, or at least maybe even later artists, who decide to make him this kind of reedy—no pun intended—reedy, skinny scientist guy who occasionally goes off on superhero missions. Right,
1: and you can also see that happening as you get further and further away from the height of the Cold War. How so? Well, because like part of. The original Fantastic Four story is like like Reed's ambition and aggressiveness and everything in that original story is in trying to beat the Russians into space, and that, that sort of and that's part okay. of, and that also informs his guilt over what happens to Ben Grimm because it was you know he was prioritizing this one thing over family and friends.
0: Who plays the scientist guy from This Island of Earth? Because he was a two-fisted scientist type too. He
1: was. Um, I haven't seen that movie in years. Um,
0: I only know it because I did a whole watch through of MST3K,
1: which is a very chopped up version of that movie. I like the MST3K movie, but the reason that the This Island of Earth is so funny in it is that it's a really chopped up version.
0: Uh, Rex Reason.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Rex Reason. Reed Richards, coincidence. <laughs> All right, so I mean, did we like this
1: story? It's better than Gratu.
0: Yeah, so let's say it's better than the Gratu story from last episode, even though it is very much the same vein. It doesn't feel the Gratu story was almost insulting mm-hmm. in its simplicity. This is a little bit more. Twilight zone?
1: Yeah, well, and and as as strange as the sort of subplot of Leslie and Alice's relationship is, it at least is a subplot. It's character development. Yeah. It, yeah. it is this very it is a very simplistic form of character development, but but it's something.
0: I mean, at the beginning of the story I wrote, please tell me Alice dies. <laughs> she didn't, but she seemed to see reason, at least.
1: Right, and and also, in comparing it to the earlier Gratu story, at least there's no casual racism.
0: That is always a plus. Anyway, I think that says that for this comic...
1: Yeah, no, it's... like If you're really curious where one of the more popular Guardians of the Galaxy came from... It's worth tracking down. It's probably been collected because it's one of the more famous Kirby monsters.
0: Right. I mean, if you want to see the origin of that thing that your coworkers gave you that's sitting on a little pot on your desk... I'm
1: not going to lie. I I have at least three Groot Funko Pops.
0: (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Anyway, we'll be right back with Marvel Spotlight number three. Werewolf by night after these messages.
1: When the moon is full, the beast must die. One of you is a werewolf! You must track down the werewolf. One of these eight people is a werewolf. Can you guess which one? 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 One of these eight people will turn into a werewolf. Can you guess who it is when we stop the film for The Werewolf Break? See it. Solve it. But don't tell. The Beast Must Die. Rated PG. And we're back with Tomb of Ideas. And our next issue for today is Marvel Spotlight number three The Thing in the Cellar. Cover date is May 1972. Writer Jerry Conway, artist Michael Plug, inker Michael Plug, cover by Michael Plug, and letterer Sam Rosen. We open with The Werewolf, and a bit of recap for those who missed the origin in the previous story. Several months have passed since that first story, and as the werewolf staggers through the woods, we get a flashback to events Jack Russell would learn about only later. Jack's sister, Lissa, is driving to their family's beach house where Jack has been staying, when she is chased and attacked by a gang of bikers. One of the bikers tries to grab Lissa, and the two of them crash through the window of the house together. Jack, having already transformed due to the full moon, instinctively defends his sister, and attacks the bikers. The bikers run toward the woods, and the werewolf begins to follow, but is interrupted when his sister regains consciousness, and two policemen show up to investigate the disturbance. Jack gets away, but is shot in the leg. From the woods, Jack recognizes his stepfather's voice, talking to a police officer and an unfamiliar man who seems to spot the werewolf hiding amongst the trees. Exhausted and hurting, Jack collapses in the woods and wakes up the next morning, human once more. He tries to hitch a ride, and is picked up by the same stranger he saw talking to his stepfather the night before. Introducing himself as Nathan Timley, the man reveals that he and his wife have been watching Jack very closely, and might be able to help him with the werewolf curse. Arriving at Timley's home, Jack is immediately accosted by Nathan's wife, Agatha, who demands to know the whereabouts of a book Jack supposedly inherited from his father. Jack professes ignorance and is knocked unconscious. He wakes up in a dirty, dungeon-like room chained to the wall. He is soon introduced to Craig, the Tembley's disfigured servant with a metal prosthetic hand, who is to keep watch over the imprisoned Jack. Craig reveals himself to have a bit of a temper, and begins beating Jack to try and get the secret book for himself. Later in the evening, Nathan quietly comes to Jack offering food and apologies, but by then Jack has once again transformed into the werewolf, who for obvious reasons considers Timbley to be a threat. Craig rescues his master, and even with his augmented lycanthropic strength, Jack is unable to break free of his chains. The next day, Agatha reveals a bit more information Notably that the book Jack's father supposedly left to him was a book of spells. As Craig again becomes aggressive toward Jack, Nathan tries to stop him, and in the process reveals that the spell book is in fact called the Darkhold. Craig kills Nathan by accident, and in the confusion Jack escapes. Night falls, and Jack once again becomes the werewolf, who is able to smash the remaining shackles on a nearby anvil. Agatha sends Craig to fight the werewolf, and Craig seems to have the, excuse the pun, upper hand, until a bolt of lightning is drawn to his metal prosthetic, striking and killing him. The werewolf thinks it sees a woman before falling into a series of unpleasant dreams. In those dreams, Agatha tries to cast her spells without the Darkhold, and she pays the ultimate price. Jack wakes up, Reflecting on his dreams, and resolves to figure out the connection between his curse and the mysterious dark hold.
0: So yeah. I really like this
1: issue. <laughs> I did too. It 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 definitely begins to expand on the mythology of how this particular werewolf curse might be working.
0: Yeah, and that's really refreshing because at first, like based on the first few pages, I thought this was gonna be Werewolf by Night versus Bikers.
1: Right. And and to be fair, I, I totally get why that scene is there. Um it it really is worth noting just how big biker and biker gangs were in popular culture at the time.
0: Right. I think Hunter S. Thompson's book about the Hells Angels came out in nineteen sixty seven
1: right and you've got easy rider around that same time um, but also the born losers in 1968 which was a low budget movie that did huge business especially like drive-ins and stuff like that and it had a follow up billy jack which was even in, an even bigger success and that came out just a year before this issue
0: so yeah definite fad of the time that you know evil biker gangs are roaming the countryside um, raping women, and and that's something. I was really afraid here. Alyssa was going to get raped.
1: Yes, that was. I mean, it's silver. It's 1970s Marvel, and so I didn't think they would push things too far. But I was worried about what they might imply.
0: Right, and is it Alyssa? Alisa?
1: I I I was thinking Lisa because of the double S, but it could be Lisa.
0: Oh dear. We're going to find, we're gonna have to find a listener who's an Alyssa or Lisa M2 can correct us on this because otherwise we're going to just keep on doing this.
1: Because I figure, yeah, I mean, either could potentially be correct.
0: <laughs> so speaking of the beginning of this book, it's very weird. At first you're thinking that Jack is out as the werewolf, except if you look very closely at the cover page, you might realize he's actually having a flashback before we get into the story proper.
1: Yeah, there is some sneaky past tense in those caption boxes.
0: And it's, it, it gets confusing. <laughs>
1: um, all, all we needed, all we needed was just one caption that said earlier the same night.
0: Speaking of very confusing narration, the narration from page three... I ran to the head of the stairs. I saw shapes moving in the darkness outside. Something leaping off the concrete pathway. The rumble of my in- of an engine screaming in my ears. And before I can move, it happened. That last bit. That that last bit. And before I can move, it happened. On page four, is in mm-hmm. speech balloon. That is the only time I've ever seen this. Right. Like, is he shouting that from the top of the stairs, or?
1: That is odd.
0: Is that a, is that a letter error?
1: It would have to be.
0: And that's why I was really apprehensive.
1: Because it's also a speech. It's also a speech balloon that goes nowhere. Like it's pointing off page.
0: Yeah, it's pointing up. Which.
1: And that's not where the werewolf ends up coming from. Like he comes from up, but not from that direction. No.
0: Uh, speaking of. Why does the biker jump through the big picture window?
1: This is really confusing visually. I think
0: because he he uses the like little stairway part as a ramp and he jumps his bike right. up to follow Alyssa Alyssa and he ends up going through the big plate glass window of the house.
1: Right. Which and then blames her, which really doesn't make any sense at all.
0: No, the art is not very clear on this one. And based on this beginning, I was very apprehensive about this issue.
1: Yes. I mean, luckily, at least for this issue, we never see those bikers again.
0: No, they, they get scared off pretty quickly when they realize that Jack is not some guy in a fright mask, but indeed is a real creature.
1: Which, that seems to be a thing that's going to recur, is the werewolf shows up, someone thinks it's a guy in a costume, realizes it's not a guy in a costume, and panics.
0: Right. So the real story of this issue is when Mr. Timley shows up. Right. Um, I thought that was an interesting development, especially considering where the story had been going up to this point where I thought, you know, the bikers were going to come back, and there was going to be this big confrontation between the bikers, and he guts them all, <laughs> which...
1: It, right, and it also is is a little surprising, even from the previous issue, because we were left thinking, well, now the werewolf is going to pursue vengeance. He's going to be struggling between his desire for vengeance against the stepfather and his promise to not hurt the stepfather. Right with the werewolf perhaps acting on the id that jack is otherwise repressing. Right. But but this is taking us back toward the story that the mother told in the first issue and the story of his 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 real father. Right. So
0: our story picks up again with a middle-aged man picking up a shirtless muscular young man who's hitchhiking. On the highway, and of, of course, oh wait, no, it doesn't go where I think it's going. Um, <laughs> he says, "I'm taking you home to my wife," and I'm like, "Yeah, sure, wife." But no, he has a wife, and it's B. Arthur.
1: But like B. Arthur dressed as the Bride of Frankenstein.
0: I can see that.
1: Like the white streaks in the hair are very much a like it. it I'm getting a very gothic universal horror vibe from everything at that house.
0: Yeah, and what we're going to see a lot, I think, for these Marvel horror stuff is a lot of cribbing from universal horror, but also from hammer horror.
1: Yeah, well, like, um, Craig strikes me as a Frankenstein's monster type character. And originally I thought maybe like a combination of Frankenstein and the stereotypical Igor assistant servant. Mm-hmm. But all but in but visually he's very much like the Hammer Frankenstein's monsters plural. Because that's the difference between universal and hammer Frankenstein, is that in the Universal movies you always had the same monster, but in and, and different different members of the Frankenstein family. Right. In the Hammer movies, you always had Peter Cushing as Doctor Frankenstein, but he was making different monsters. And this guy, this Craig character, seems like one of those creations Peter Cushing might have come up with.
0: Right. So the the vibe I got from these two is like if Peter Lorre had married B. Arthur.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely and and uh, I was in, I was Peter Lorre is apt. I didn't think of that myself, but I definitely can see that. I was thinking. Um, Warner Oland. um, He was a Swedish-American actor. Um, He was in the 1935 movie movie Werewolf of London. Right. Um, And he he was, even though he was Swedish-American, because it was the 1930s, he was mostly famous for playing Asian characters. Oh, dear. But both visually and sort of in terms of characterization, I, I got sort of a similar vibe as... His character from uh, as the Warner Oland character in Werewolf of London. Yeah, I, I, but again, I got Peter Lorre because I can just imagine.
0: You better tell her, Jack. Andrea has a terrible way about her when she's angered. <laughs> Which I can imagine, like an older Peter Lorre. You know, he's near the end of his career. He's pretty messed up on drugs, doing this low budget horror film, Werewolf by Night.
1: Yeah. Um, also, I guess we could just go ahead and say, Jack's dad was a really complicated guy.
0: Yeah, oh, Peter Laurie died in 1964. Never mind, he's been dead for 10 years at this point. Sorry, I, I had to look it up. Yeah, J- Jack's ah. dad is a, is a weird guy. So he was a werewolf, but apparently he was also a sorcerer?
1: Apparently. And while that is really weird, Werewolf Sorcerer also gives me a great idea for my next D&D character.
0: <laughs> you know, I don't usually run D&D, but I would run that game so you could play that character.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right. Anyway, um, so, so this is the point where we find out that what everyone is fighting over is the Darkhold. And that's really, really important, both in terms of this book and in terms of the Marvel Universe.
0: Right. It's like one of those big magic items that it's its a lot like the Necronomicon if we're looking at, like, say, the Evil Dead Universe.
1: Yeah. It, its um, It also has the name the Book of Sins, I think, that they call it that sometimes in the comics. It's a grimoire, so it's a book of spells. Um... But it's linked to all kinds of magic and evil stuff in the Marvel Universe. Right. Um, In fact, um, a version of it recently appeared in uh, the most recent season of Marvel Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D.
0: Which I'm way behind on. I'm not even through season three yet,
1: but. But that was because, you know, the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Not to go off on a tangent, but they kind of. Even when they can't directly tie into the movies, they thematically try to tie in. And so around the same time that Doctor Strange was coming out, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. introduced Ghost Rider and started doing their own magical storyline. And in their case, they introduced the Darkhold.
0: So I'm wondering how that fits in with the whole Doctor Strange stuff, because they don't go so far as to call, if I remember Doctor Strange correctly, the stuff Doctor Strange is doing magic.
1: I think the other, once he meets the other characters in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, they will call it magic. Okay. I, uh, you know, like... I mean, it, it's gonna be... It's interesting, because we've already had Thor say magic and science are the same thing.
0: Right. We have, in his first movie. But... Again, this is not a Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast. This is a right. Marvel horror podcast. Right. So Right.
1: But anyway, the Dark Hold, really important. It's gonna come up a lot, and not just in Werewolf by Night stories.
0: Yeah. Um, speaking of death counts, we weren't but let's do that. There's a really high one in this issue. <laughs> like yes. people just like, casually getting killed. Didn't like when the bikers get killed earlier?
1: Um I think so. If not killed, then at least horribly maimed.
0: Horribly maimed. Always fun. Okay, no, he's not dead. He's just... Yeah, he he gets scared off. And Nathan dies at the hands of Craig. Yep. (laughs) I just had a thought. Craig, as played by Craig Ferguson. (laughs) (laughs) I would watch that. Okay.
1: And... And, and of course, Craig himself uh, dies, struck by lightning.
0: Right, okay, let's talk about that. Once Craig accidentally kills Nathan and Jack escapes, this issue starts getting really trippy and really gorgeous. Yes. For instance, um, there is a really good um, transformation, a, a single panel transformation from Jack Russell into a werewolf at uh, the bottom, uh, page bottom of page 17, yeah.
1: Yes. And, and that's because he basically does it in still images exactly the way that the old werewolf movies would do it. Right. Like you get the sort of slow transition of human to wolf, but instead of doing it as a dissolve like a movie would, because mm-hmm. you, you can't do that in comics, he does it across the panel, and it's great. It is
0: fantastic. That is, I posted this up on the Tomb of Ideas Twitter feed – I love this panel, it's great, and it only gets better from here.
1: Yeah, Um, I mean, look ahead just a a few pages. Page 21, which is sort of the climax of the fight between the werewolf and Craig. Right. Like, that is pretty. The,
0: The top panel to page 21, where Craig says, And because of it, you must die! I feel my muscles tensing. In a moment, I would spring my wolf's teeth would find Craig's throat, and in that instant, the man I could have been would indeed have died. But something takes that horror from happening, an intervening stroke of fate, a stroke that saved my soul. So, like, he's about to kill Jack in Werewolf 4, and lightning strikes him just in time to stop Jack from having to rip out his throat. So, basically, it stops Jack from murdering Craig. Right. Saving his soul. And I'm just like, so, is that fate that steps in, like, God? Or is are we supposed to believe that, like, Andrea stepped in somehow?
1: And it's really not clear.
0: No. For instance, what motivation would Andrea have to step in and stop Craig from killing Jack Russell unless she still needs him for the dark hold or mm-hmm. she needs him to have a pure soul.
1: Right. Either way, what it's definitely doing is helping to reposition a traditionally horror villain character of a werewolf into a more heroic mold.
0: Right. And we'll start seeing, I think, just from what I've seen as far as covers go, we'll start seeing Jack Russell becoming more of a superheroic character. Yes. But here, it's still this tragic werewolf story. And it really is tragic. I mean, this guy's life has crumbled around him. I yeah. mean, he is barely holding on to it. He's trying to keep his, you know, keep his sister part of his life, but it's not really working. Right. And, you know...
1: Especially not when she goes out driving late at night when there are biker gangs roaming the hillsides of California.
0: Exactly. So, um, Andrea does some kind of spell. And she dies.
1: Right. And what's weird to me is that all of that is a dream. Like, Jack as the werewolf is aware of that happening somehow.
0: Yeah, he, like, gets a vision of her, um... Trying to invo- yeah, she tries to invoke long dead gods, trying without the information she needed from the book called Darkhold. So she's
1: which is just that one caption is really important because I think later it's revealed that the Darkhold is directly connected to sort of Marvel's version of Lovecraftian stuff like Cthulhu, the the demon Cthulhu. Right. So she's
0: trying to um, she's trying to summon yeah. Cthulhu, but without the instruction manual.
1: Right. And you don't want to do that. That's no. You're going to violate the terms of service. It's not going to be under warranty.
0: Right. She has, like, a heart attack because she tried to summon so many Elder Gods. She falls, accidentally setting her parlor on fire, and she burns to death. Right. And then Jack is wondering, like, was that all a dream? Did that really happen? Um,
1: and, of course, like, pretty sure Craig's dead body is still right there. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Jack. Again, we've addressed this before, Jack Russell is not the sharpest tool in the shed. Uh,
1: But I will say, as he's musing on all of this and and resolving to continue investigating uh, the Darkhold and his father and all that, that last panel at the end of the the last page is really great. It is. With with the, the image of the wolf appearing in the clouds and the sky behind him. Yeah.
0: It's 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 nice. I don't think it's as nice as the single panel on the previous page, that panel twenty one no, shot, no. where it's just like well, there, this there's montage. there's there's a lot
1: more going on. There's a lot more going on in that that fight panel.
0: But yeah, um, you know, this issue really weak start, really yes. strong finish.
1: Definitely. Um, I, like it, it felt like because the sister was introduced in the first issue. In order to get Jack Russell to move on, that they had to do something with her to sort of not necessarily resolve her story, but at least take him away from the rest of the family for a while. Mm-hmm. And, and it sort of does that.
0: It's, it's, a, it's good stuff. Um, I'm liking when I'm seeing a werewolf by night. Uh, I, d- I wasn't expecting to. I was expecting mm-hmm. Werewolf by Night to be this kind of hokey thing, especially the way Roy Thomas talks about it in later issues of The Bullpen. Right. Um, but no, I'm actually enjoying these these first two stories of Werewolf by Night and I'm interested in seeing where it goes from here because
1: Yeah. Now, that said, it's not my favorite like in terms of the whole run. Like what I've read of it is not my favorite of the Marvel horror stuff, but it's not bad by a long shot.
0: No, and it's just like you have Jack trying to maintain this life that he had before his curse got there, and you just see this unsustainable, and it's impossible, but you see him hanging on to it, and I'm just curious to see how it's going to fall apart. Uh, This is reprinted or collected in Essential Werewolf by Night, trade paperback Volume 1 from 2005, as well as Imusimi Iozza... Trey back 2010, and I butchered that. Trey, how do you say it properly?
1: Imusihiosa, I believe is correct. I am going off of Google Translate, though, so please do not be offended if you are Finnish and listening. Yeah, that's
0: the Finnish reprint of these books from 2010, as well as the Werewolf by Night Omnibus. And I have to say, I saw some, some screen grabs from the Omnibus, and as much as I complain about digital recoloring... There's some really nice recoloring in those, in those omnibuses.
1: Yeah, I mean, this the horror books because of their tone and style, they read well in black and white. So if the essential is what you go for, like they're gonna they're gonna be good even in black and white. Um, but if you can spring for the color, the art in in both these and the other horror books are so good that that I would say it's worth it.
0: I would agree with that there. We're going to be right back with Tomb of Dracula number two right after these messages. Tonight, on the CBS Late Movie, Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee star as the world's
1: darkest legend resurfaces to terrorize today. His cursed ashes are found,
0: his spirit called from below, and the world is damned. Summoned you! By Dracula. In the modern streets of London, the gothic horror walks again, still thirsty for blood and ready to infect his armies with
1: his curse. You should be back in there. Peter Christian stars with Christopher Lee in Dracula, A.D. 1972.
0: Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. And now we're going to talk about one of our feature, regularly featured titles here on the show, Tomb of Dracula. And, of course, this story is Tomb of Dracula number two, The Fear Within. Cover dated May 1972. Writers are Jerry Conway. Artist, is, of course, is Gene Colin. Inker is Vince Coletta. Letterer is John Costanza. Cover is by John Se- Severn. And editor is Stan Lee. After the dramatic events of Last Issue, Frank Drake has returned to the burned-out ruins of Castle Dracula to see what he can learn about his villainous ancestor the castle's namesake. After a flashback recapping the events of last issue, Frank and his mute hired hand, Gort, happen upon Dracula's tomb, where feeble pleas for help drift from below. The two find Clifton at the bottom of the pit, driven half-mad for days alone in the dark with the dead. Frank, however, has little time for crazy Clifton as he and Gort proceed to heft their real objective out of the crypt, Dracula's coffin. Meanwhile, Dracula visits an elderly doctor named Van Harbo, who once served him as a child. The doctor dutifully tends to Dracula's wounds in the fight in last issue, before Dracula reveals that he knows it was young Van Harbo who betrayed him to the vampire hunters all those years ago, and proceeds to feed on the doctor. Meanwhile, Frank and Clifton have flown Dracula's coffin to London, where it is revealed that after selling the castle and lands, Drake is flush with cash again. Later in his hotel, Drake is startled by a sound from his bathroom and is shocked to find a vampiric Genie in his shower. Genie tries to convince Drake she has returned to him, but Drake is having none of it. Things are complicated by the arrival of a very drunk Clifton, who Genie tries to similarly influence before Drake manages to fend her off a crucifix. Outside an eavesdropping Dracula realizes his newly minted bride may be delayed in her plan, so he decides he'll take in a bit of local cuisine. While he gives her time to sort it out, Dracula finds a promising morsel in an attractive young woman named Ellie, who he follows into a local pub. After out offering to buy Ellie a drink, Dracula is accosted by her drunk boyfriend, who the Lord of Vampires makes quick work of on a swat of his cane before escorting the impressed Ellie out of the pub. Ellie's admiration for her new sitter is short lived, however, as he feasts to her on the alley outside. The vivacious girl's pitiful final scream draws the pub goers to the alley, where they find the crumbled dead form of Ellie and a dark shape taking flight into the night. Meanwhile, Drake and Clifton have tied up Jeannie and wait to ambush her master. Jeannie, though, is using her newfound vampiric power of persuasion to twist the weak-minded Clifton around her finger. Properly duped, Clifton drugs Drake and frees Jeannie as Dracula comes flying through the window. The three move to retrieve the coffin, not realizing that Drake has faked his incapacitation until he makes his strike. Drake's plan is to bind the two vampires with a crucifix, but is wrecked by the hypnotized Clifton. Drake knocks his idiot friend out just in time to be set upon by Dracula himself. After a quick, one-sided battle where Drake gets his butt handed to him by his great-great-grandpa, Drake recovers in enough time to prevent the unconscious Clifton from becoming prey by driving a shattered piece of wooden furniture through Genie's undead heart. Realizing delaying any further will expose him to the dangers of sunlight, Dracula flees. Genie that was left behind seems to regain a bit of her humanity as she feels the effects of the sun's rays. It's better this way. I don't hurt anymore. I don't she tells Frank as she slowly dissolves into dust.
1: This is a dang good comic.
0: Yeah, but I really need to write shorter summaries.
1: <laughs> I mean, it, there's a lot of expositional stuff. Like, it, it's it's not an action-packed comic, you know?
0: No, but there's a lot going on for, what, a 21-page comic?
1: Absolutely, and it jumps back and forth between, you know, two or three different plots at any given time.
0: Yeah, there's so there's a lot going on but all of it is done really well.
1: Yeah. Um and the art is fantastic. I love the cover. Um also uh the bottom of page 3, um the sort of flashback uh sequence at the very beginning of the issue. Right. Um is just really well done as it, like it's like the memories are literally swirling around his head.
0: Right. It's very similar to that panel from the World by Nine ish issue we just talked about. Yeah, uh, yeah. But this is different. This is like memory swirling upon this consciousness, and it's, it, it, it's a different composition. It's still a, kind of like a collage of but memories. But there's no,
1: there's no panel divisions. Like, it all just sort of runs into each other the way memory would.
0: Yeah, but you're never really confused about what direction to read it in. No. It's good. It's just, it's really well done. Um, one thing I will say about the art, the inker is, of course, Vince Coletta. Mm -hmm. who is famous for butchering Jack Kirby's pencils. Yeah. Um, For those of our listeners who don't know, Vince Coletta had a habit of erasing lines and sometimes even characters in order to make a deadline. Coletta was known for his speed at the time, but has since become infamous for his butchering, especially of Jack Kirby's artwork, where Jack Kirby would turn in this really detailed panel, and Vince Coletta would just start... Getting rid of lines here and there, so we didn't have to ink them. Jack Kirby apparently never noticed this until it was par- pointed out to him by a fan, at which point he asked that Vince Coletta never again ink any of his stuff. Um, which shows you how much Jack spent re- actually reading comic books.
1: Right. Well, he was usually very busy. You know, like yeah. he was what? working on how he was working on how many titles at a time. I think
0: five. He could right. do five a week, or five a month at least. Right. Which is dang impressive.
1: But that's also... I mean, in terms of the not noticing thing, how many times did things in comics get retconned because Stan couldn't remember what they had said in the last issue?
0: Right. And apparently, another thing Vince Coletta had going for him or against him, depends on your point of view, is he was an Italian guy from the old Italian neighborhood. So he had connections
1: sure sure
0: and you know he could sometimes help editors out with um let's say distribution issues
1: sure i can see that
0: (laughs) so he wasn't a guy you really wanted to
1: piss off sure
0: (laughs) which but again he is of course infamous for the jack kirby butchering thing
1: Right, and I will say in this issue it's not at least immediate apparent immediately apparent that there's any sort of detail missing from the issue, you know?
0: Right, we'd have to see um Gene Colan's original pencils, which I don't think sure. are available. Did did they ever put on an artist edition for Tomb of Dracula?
1: I'm not sure. That would be really cool to see. Yeah,
0: hold on, let me just look it up real quick. Um, so where did Gort come from?
1: Gort, what's funny is this is one of like three or four characters in the Marvel Universe named Gort, and he's the one that doesn't continue beyond this, I don't think.
0: No, I mean, he he appears in, I think, the first Yeah, four pages? Five pages? Near
1: as I can tell, he is a villager that
0: a, um, a, a strong, mute, dumb villager, who happens to be a horror movie cliche, just lying around.
1: That, that Drake hires to help him drag the coffin away.
0: Yeah. Because apparently he's not smart enough to stay away from the castle like the rest of the villagers. Right. Um, so yeah, they find Clifton...
1: Boy, do they find Clifton.
0: He, he, he's done, gone, plum crazy. Uh, yeah Which, I mean, he, he says that apparently Dracula didn't understand how long he'd been asleep, so he thought all the dead bodies, sorry, all the bodies he'd kept down in the well to feed him were still there. Right. You know, still alive, but apparently, of course, because it's been hundreds of years, or at least almost 100 years, all those people are dead now. So he just made Clifton spend days in the dark with a bunch of dead bodies, which might drive me insane, too.
1: I mean, that's definitely going to be unsettling.
0: Extremely so. But, again, as we'll point out later, Clifton's an idiot anyway.
1: Right. And also, on basically, at this moment in the story, when they've just rescued Clifton there's this moment where he asks, what are you doing with his coffin? And and there's just a single panel close-up of Drake, and he says, we're stealing it. And, I mean, I love this story, but I also really, really want the story of, like, a team of monster hunters who plan a heist to steal Dracula's coffin. <laughs> like,
0: Drake's Eleven?
1: Right! Like... I kind of want that story, too.
0: <laughs> that would be a great story, actually. I would read that. I would watch that movie, definitely. Absolutely. <laughs> Alright, so then we get to this doctor dude. Um, yeah,
1: and when was Dracula killed again? Like, when was the stake put in his heart?
0: I'm assuming the original Br- Bram Stoker story.
1: Right, so we're talking, like... 1880s, maybe 1890s?
0: Mm Mm-hmm. That doesn't line up with this guy's age.
1: I know that doctor is old, but I don't think he's that old.
0: No, which leads us to believe that there have been later resurrections of Dracula that have ended with his death at the castle.
1: Yeah, or something.
0: Which, from my understanding of future Tomb of Dracula stories, that is a bunch of Dracula is resurrected and then killed again. Dracula is resurrected and then killed again. So, that'll be interesting to tra- track. I wonder if anybody's ever done a, like a timeline of Tomb of Dracula. Just inserting it in there. Saying, Dracula is resurrected and killed again. Huh. Which, I'll have to look for that after we get done recording.
1: Yes. Um, And also... What experiments and operations did this doctor perform? Because Dracula doesn't look any different after he's finished.
0: I guess he's not hobbled in any sort of way. Well, he he yeah. snacks on a town girl like a, a like a village girl, and then yeah, he just seems fine again.
1: But he he says I could pass for one of you weakling mortals and. No, he's still got chalk white skin.
0: Yeah, okay. Excellent, Van Harbo, Harbo, but for a few remaining disabilities, I could pass for one of you weakling mortals. You are pleased, my count? Quite, Carl. You've done a fine job. And then he looks in a mirror and, of course, can't see himself. So how does he know he's done a fine job? Right. Anyway moving on right the scene with genie is milked really well
1: yeah yeah that sort of reunion and then sort of him like realizing that she's still a vampire like all of that like the the sequence of emotions and the way they are conveyed is is really effective
0: feeling feeling the icy burning of his grasp and the first almost fatal moment he remembers and he knows you're not genie, not my genie so yeah that that's that's good stuff
1: and then the next page you've got dumbass Clifton sitting there swinging a beer
0: like hey genie looking good basically that's I mean he doesn't was, it's not what he says but it's, it's like he
1: says hey girl chick where you been Ugh, it, Clifton. (laughs) You weren't that far off.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, wait, Drake didn't take the time to, you know, point out to him that, hey, Genie got turned into a vampire? I mean,
1: I guess not. (laughs) I mean, I
0: almost feel like that's a fault of Drake there.
1: Although, it becomes pretty clear in subsequent pages that Clifton doesn't care.
0: Also, as we've said before, and I'm getting the feeling we'll state again in this book, Clifton is an idiot.
1: Not only is Clifton an idiot, but Dracula's plan seems to hinge on just how big an idiot Clifton is.
0: Exactly. Like, I'm getting the feeling that Clifton was an idiot before Dracula's tomb was ever discovered. Yep. Um, So we move on here.
1: Yep, we shift focus from uh, Frank and Jeannie back to Dracula.
0: Back to Dracula, who still is not passing for a mortal. No,
1: no, he looks like an undead Jack the Ripper.
0: Exactly. I mean, he looks dapper, don't get me
1: wrong. Right, but in 1970s London, or wherever they are at this point, like, he does not fit in.
0: (laughs) No, not at all. So, he decides that apparently... Because Genie's going to be a bit longer than they expected. He's going to go off and get a bite to eat. Right. I mean, makes sense. Not, 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 you know, swooping in to help her out. He's like, ah, she's got this sorted. Even if she's screaming no from the window. <laughs> it's like, nah, she's got this sorted. Mmm, tasty snack.
1: Right. And, and, and so, his running into Ellie prompts him to think back to the previous issue. But I'm pretty, right. I'm pretty sure that barmaid didn't even get a name in that first issue. She was not an important character.
0: No, I think she gets vamped. She gets turned into a vampire, and that's the thing—the last we see of her.
1: It is. Um, uh, she, uh, we, we see the, the bit where um, the owner of the bar is carrying her body. Right. That's how they. that's how they know Dracula is back.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, yes, Dracula's right. It is quite weird that he chooses this moment to flashback on the barmaid from the first issue.
1: Because she wasn't that memorable.
0: No, and he says – I guess it's because it's supposedly Ellie reminds him of the barmaid. But I, I, think, I
1: guess because this is the second time he's fed on someone at a bar.
0: Yeah, but I think honestly that's selling Ellie short.
1: She's a more interesting character. She's given way more development in her <laughs> few pages of existence.
0: Right, and maybe it's because I'm using pop culture shorthand in my own brain – but she kind of strikes me as Mary Jane Watson meets Eliza Doolittle.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of that, I think, uh, in the character. And and her, her death is far more tragic than the barmaid in the first issue. The barmaid in the first issue is set up from the beginning as sort of greedy and manipulative and, you know, like, she's already not a positive character when we first see her. But but Ellie Ellie seems to want something better for her life.
0: Right. I mean, we meet her boyfriend, who's like this drunken oaf who hangs out at the pub. He tries to accost Dracula. Dracula backhands him with his pimp king um, and knock him across the room. Ella's impressed. She isn't a particularly bad person like I think the, we see with the barmaid in previous issues. She just accepts a free drink and her fate is sealed. She thinks she's met this refined gentleman, this guy mm-hmm. who might rescue her from her low-class life, who knocks out her boorish boyfriend in one hit, and then a few minutes later he's feeding on her in a back alley. Right. And it, the way it's done is great, the dying scream, the slumping form, but it's really horrific too.
1: Yeah, and it's even more horrific because up until the moment they get to the alley, Dracula looks almost heroic.
0: Right. And like she's thinking her life's about to turn around. She th- she's thinking, "Okay, this is this is a real gentleman." And then yeah, he feeds on her and she's yep. dead. Yeah. It's it's really depressing, and spoilers, guys. It's not the last depressing issue in this death in this issue.
1: No, well, and or in the series. Um, but but it sort of speaks to the effectiveness of this creative team that they will invest so much into what's really a disposable character, so that you feel something when that character goes away.
0: Yeah. Let me just look at something real quick. So. Then we get the genie's death,
1: mm-hmm. which before we get to that, okay. um, Dracula briefly sort of reflects on the sort of rules of Dracula in that um, he's supposed to have to return to his coffin, but really he has to return to his native soil, which he usually keeps in his coffin. So without his coffin, is Dracula just carrying around a bunch of loose dirt?
0: I think so. I think
1: like does he just have like a like a like a a big box of dirt.
0: I think that is what they're implying. I think, yeah, I think on page 15, um, third and fourth panel, um, my dear cousin must take me for a fool. Stealing my sacred coffin was indeed an inconvenience to me, but hardly fatal for it's not the wood, which matters, but the transatlantic earth, which fills my morning sulfur. So, uh, sepulcher. Okay, sepulcher. And yet, the coffin will be mine. Yeah, Thomas and his fancy words. Question <laughs> is, this is Gene, Jerry Conway. Excuse me.
1: This one's Conway. Yes, yeah, Conway. Yeah. Excuse me. Who also uses lots of fancy words. Yeah,
0: true. Um.
1: Um. I, I guess, I feel like that would raise some questions with the bellhop at the hotel.
0: I mean, you know, as far as the bellhop knows, it's just a somewhat heavy box, It's not like he opens it and expects it. It's like, huh, this box is full of Transylvanian dirt. (laughs) So I I think, I think, I don't think it raises as many questions as you're thinking. Okay. I think it's just this weird, eccentric gentleman, probably wealthy, who's maybe throwing some money around the hotel, dresses a little bit out of date, and that's about it. Fair enough. So, okay. So that's the, the dirt issue. Yep. So let's get to Jeannie's death. Yes. Which is tragic. I mean, I thought that Ellie's death was a, was very unsettling. Jeannie's death is heartbreaking. Yeah. It's really touching, which it reminded me a lot of Gwen Stacy's death, which would happen a year and a month later, mm-hmm. in Amazing Spider-Man number 121, also written by Jerry Conway.
1: Yeah, it's almost like he's the guy they call when they need the the tragic uh, girlfriend dying scene.
0: Really tragic girlfriend dying scene. I mean, she's like... Hold on. And we skipped over a bunch of fight scene, which really wasn't that important. I mean, it was fun and all, but... Um, so this is page 21, and it's like, Frank, I'm dying, Frank, the sunlight. Jeannie, heaven, what have I done? Don't, Frank, please don't. It's better this way. I don't hurt anymore. I don't her, And then she crumbles into dust. Yeah. Leaving.
1: And, and what makes it even more upsetting or tragic or whatever you want to call it is this is usually the triumphant moment of the vampire story he has defeated a vampire right that's usually a moment of celebration of we have triumphed against evil we have defeated the villain the monster is destroyed but she wasn't a monster really
0: no she was the woman he loved right so he he's he's there on his knees his hands and his face in his hands crying over the disintegrated ashes of Genie. And meanwhile, Clifton's looking from the corner room. What the fuck just happened?
1: Right, because Clifton, to the very end, is an an idiot.
0: idiot. It's like, really, Clifton? You just fought vampires. One just dissolved into dust. Catch up. Right. So I really like this issue. It was it's good. It's... It, it was really good,
1: and and it I think is really pushing us toward developing Drake as a character in some interesting ways.
0: Yeah, I think something. It's not
1: really it's not really an issue that's about him. It's about all of these people around him. But I think by virtue of that, we get a better sense of who he is.
0: Right. A common criticism I hear of Tomb of Dracula up until the point where Mark Wolfman comes on. And he and Gene Cullen do their epic run together, is that it kind of meanders along. It kind of goes back and forth meandering situations. And I suppose you can make the same argument for Werewolf by Night, but these stories, they're, you know, they're they're not really going anywhere, but they're still they're still good stories.
1: Right. And it does feel like they're laying the foundation for something. Right. Um like even just there's a brief aside near the end of the issue. I think it's while he's fighting Dracula or just after he's fought Dracula, but Frank refers to himself as perhaps accursed as I am. Or is it Dracula musing on Frank? I think it's Dracula musing about Frank that Frank might might also share his curse. Um, let me find that page. Sure. It's near the it's near the end.
0: Well, while you're doing that, I'm going to look at the bullpen real quick where they talk about the addition of a new writer to the staff. Yeah. I don't Hello to stalwart Steve Englehart, who just joined oh. our harried little staff, where he'll be doing proofreading, penciling, inking, scripting, and probably lettering. If somebody will lend him a spelling book, welcome aboard, Steve. May your ink well never run dry. So, Steve Englehart. Yeah. He would go on to do a wild and crazy run on Avengers that I like a lot. as well Yeah, as my- he did a,
1: a lot of cosmic stuff, too.
0: Yeah, he also does a... Celebrated on a Batman a few years later, I think.
1: Yeah, no, the Inglehart Batman stuff is good.
0: Is it? I've never, I've yeah. never read it. I mean, I've heard that it's good, but I've not read it. Most of my stuff I'm familiar with, of course, this is his Marvel Avengers stuff. Right. Inglehart gave us the wackos.
1: Okay, I found the panel. It's at the bottom of page 18, and it is Dracula speaking. He's, he, he's diving onto uh, Frank, and he says, "We could have been allies, you and I." You, descendant of my blood, perhaps accursed as I am.
0: Yeah, okay, I'm there now. Yeah, I see that.
1: And, and so, the, the, just in that one aside, they're setting up for maybe something further happening with, with Frank in terms of increasing the tragedy of his own existence. And that's
0: actually really well done, because the way Drac is getting him it, is like, I could have given you the world, but you betrayed me! You betrayed me! Your own blood! It's 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 good stuff. I mean, I'm not quoting word yeah. for word, but it's, it's good stuff.
1: But yeah, that that's th- there is this sense of, of sort of a familial connection that's been broken. Yeah.
0: And going back to the bullpen real quick. There is um, an announcement in Stan's soapbox. Okay. Stanley's soapbox. Let's try something different this month. Instead of me laying in on you with the usual Penelope of punctilious phrases. We'll follow the old adage of a single picture being worth a thousand words. And if this, if this picture don't fill that bill, may Forbush forgive me. His name is Luke Cage. And being a hero for hire, it's his thing. We've put it all together for you in the first sensational issue of our newest superhero mag. On sale right about now. I don't want you to think I'm hitting you with a lot of hard sell. But as one believer to another, even if it means we're forgoing Millie to model this month, Don't dare miss Luke Cage, hero for hire. He's really something else. So I wonder if this Luke Cage character is going to go anywhere.
1: Sweet Christmas.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so this is around the time in regular Marvel time that uh, Luke Cage is being introduced. So that kind of dates the issue.
1: Yeah, so I mean that's definitely placing a square in the early to mid-70s.
0: Which is fine with me.
1: Absolutely. That's, that's what we're here for.
0: Do we have anything else to say about this issue?
1: Just, um, again, that it's, it's a really good story, even though, like you said, the early issues of Tomb of Dracula are not typically as well regarded as the later issues. This is good stuff.
0: I've not read a bad issue so far.
1: No. And uh, just for reference, for anyone who's wanting to follow along, um, it has been reprinted, um, many times. Um, the Essential Tomb of Dracula Volume 1 has it. Uh, the, uh, Tomb of Dracula Hardcover Omnibus has it. Uh, there's a pay- trade paperback version of Tomb of Dracula, if you're looking for the color edition. Um, there are some foreign editions. Le Tumbo de Dracula. Uh, Super in Film. Um... There's a Finnish edition of the Dracula paperback. Uh, So lots of options out there for those, I'm assuming most of our listeners are probably speaking English. uh, The Essential Tomb of Dracula, the Omnibus, or the Trade Paperback are probably your best bets.
0: Ooh, I missed a house ad. Um, Another Marvel masterpiece on sale now. Amazing Adventures featuring the Beast. And you have the grey hairy beast this is, Of course before he was blue I right. did it I killed Iron Man It had to happen This one you can't miss One Avenger dead on arrival And of course at the bottom says In the fabulous Marvel style Huh Yeah so this is around the time that Beast gets blue and hairy Right And before he joins the Avengers But, but,
1: but, but killing Iron Man? Apparently so Oh, my stars and garters. (laughs) I did not. I should have seen that coming.
0: (laughs) Oh, and on that note, we're going to go take a quick break. We'll be right back after these messages.
1: Gatorland. There's a place that's real close by. You'll see how life around here started. You see, long ago,
0: the gators roamed This is the place dinosaurs call their home.
1: This is Gatorland. You've got to see it to believe it to understand. This is as real as it gets. Gatorland. Real horror. Gatorland. And we're back. And our final issue for this episode is going to be Astonishing Tales number 13. The title of the story, as we suggested at the beginning, was Man Thing. Cover date on this one is August 1972. Writer Roy Thomas, artist Rich Buckler and John Bashema, inker Dan Adkins, letterer John Costanza, cover artists Rich Buckler and Sam Rosen. We begin almost immediately where the previous issue ended actually a little before, as the first few pages basically recap Khazar's encounter with Man-Thing in the pit from the previous issue, as well as his defending Man-Thing from the AIM agents. Eventually, Khazar comes face to face with the Man-Thing, and finds that the creature's corrosive touch does not affect him. They have a bit of a fight, but just as Man-Thing seems poised to win, the surviving AIM agents fire a laser weapon at it, breaking up the fight. Then, Kazar's saber-toothed tiger pal Zabu finally catches up, having been restrained by Kazar in the previous issue. Zabu attacks the remaining aim agents, who quickly retreat. Finally, Barbara Morse and Paul Allen arrive and help Kazar retrieve the unconscious Man-Thing from the pit. In the process, Barbara speculates that maybe the fear that people feel when seeing Man-Thing is part of what allows that corrosive touch to work. As our protagonists plan what to do next, one of the other S.H.I.E.L.D. researchers, Dr. Wendell, is shot. Before dying, he says that the AIM agents have escaped with Paul and the comatose Dr. Calvin. Kazar confronts the captured agent who shot Wendell, and after some persuasion from Zabu, the prisoner tells them where to find Paul and Dr. Calvin. Meanwhile, the captured man-thing squeezes himself out of his cage, once again compelled by a desire for vengeance. Kazar, accompanied by Zabu and Barbara, find the hidden aim base and attack. While Kazar and Zabu fight their way through the aim forces, Barbara finds Dr. Calvin and Paul, who has now been revealed as an aim double agent. Just as Paul is about to kill Dr. Calvin, the Man-Thing bursts through the wall and kills Paul with his corrosive touch. As our heroes escape, Man-Thing throws a switch and causes the aim base to self-destruct. Barbara reveals she was never actually in love with Paul, but was assigned to keep an eye on him by S.H.I.E.L.D. With their mission in the Everglades complete, Barbara and Kazar make plans to return to the city.
0: Alright, so this issue... This issue wasn't as good as the previous issue.
1: No, it's okay. I mean, it's wrapping up the story, and it's wrapping it up fast.
0: Wrapping up fast, but let's be honest here, four pages recap? Yeah. That's a, that's obscene for this day and age. Is, I think, and my theory is, they were just trying to stretch story.
1: Yeah, they all they had, really, was the, the fight at the aim base, you know?
0: Right, really, they had <laughs> maybe one issue worth of story... They took the front half of that issue, put it into issue 12, slapped the Neil Adams-drawn story in the middle of it. That's the thing, is
1: we really have two issues here, both of which were padded out.
0: Right. And the thing is, the padding on the first issue is so good, and the padding here is just recap, recap, recap of the last issue. Right. It's not as good. So... Um I mean it's still good. It's still good Roy Thomas writing.
1: But it's stuff we already know.
0: Yeah. And I think you have some notes about that about about Roy Thomas's writing here.
1: Yeah, I mean the narration is a bit much. Um, it's not as tight or <laughs> concise as in the other man thing stories we've seen so far.
0: Right. He, he writes stuff like the loathsome unface of death.
1: Yeah. It, oh, yeah. It, I'm not even sure what that means, but it definitely sounds like a Marvel comic.
0: It definitely sounds like Roy Thomas. I mean, yeah. this is this is typical Roy Thomas writing, but that's why we love Roy Thomas.
1: And and it's it's also, if not Roy Thomas, it also sounds like something that Stan would come up with.
0: I mean, Roy Thomas used to be an English teacher, and every English teacher I've ever met talks like a walking thesaurus. <laughs> Oh, wait, you're an English teacher, aren't you? I, I am. Yeah, plenty of that. Yeah,
1: indubitably. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, yeah, um, I'm pretty sure this is also the first time the idea of fear being what makes the Man-Things touch Burns is introduced.
1: Right, and we talked about that a little bit last time, that that it hadn't been introduced yet. But um, but this is where we get it. Kazar has lived through so much in the Savage Land that he is not afraid of Man-Thing, and so can fight hand-to-hand without worrying about being burned.
0: Right. Uh, but at the same time, he does feel fear at first, but he overcomes that fear before Man-Thing touches him. Right. Which is... So we get, we're get we told here that even Kazar feels fear at the sight of Man-Thing. At so least initially,
1: told, right.
0: So we're being told here... How horrible the visage of the man thing is, which is good because I don't. I'm not quite sure it's being conveyed well in the art.
1: No, we're we're still getting the sort of shambling furry monster that we saw in all the non Neil Adams stuff from the last issue.
0: Right. I mean, the art is not terrible. No, it, it is um, John Busima, which is always good with inks by um Rich Buckler. Mm-hmm. Um it 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 does the job.
1: It does it's not a horror book though. Like this is an adventure no. comic. Man Thing is a horror character. But but he's been more or less shoehorned into this adventure book as a means of both bringing him into the Marvel universe and fleshing out his origin. Exactly. And and he goes to town on those AIM guys.
0: Yeah. There's a body count in this issue.
1: Yeah, um, those beekeeper suits are clearly not anti-corrosive.
0: No, and not armored at all. No. Um, although I'm pretty sure Zabu has a bigger body count than man thing in this issue.
1: Dang. Uh, the the part that gets me is the caption box. R seventeen is dead before he hits the ground. Like Zabu straight up mauled that guy. To yep. Death.
0: yep. Yep, that's page seven. Um, before we get there, though, we do get another bullpen, which we do have a bullpen item here that is relevant to the podcast. Okay. Item, just to prove to you that Mighty Marvel's not exactly standing still for the next few weeks, by now you've doubtless already noticed a spectacular illo elsewhere on this selfsame page. And be wondering, what's the buzz, right? And they're referring to an illustration right next to this, which is of a man on a motorcycle with a blazing skull. Hmm. So here's where we end the suspense. The current issue of Marvel Spotlight debuts a far out new feature, which we think you'll, you're going to dig. It's called Ghost Rider. But as anybody with 2020 vision can plainly see, he's no blood relation to the Western hero we sprung on you some time back. Nope. This GR is mad, mod, mystic hero who straddles both the world of motorcycles and the supernatural. And that's some job of straddling. It's by the titanic team of groovy Gary Friedrich, who dreamed the whole thing up, and Magcap Mike Plube, whose own Werewolf by Night series is scheduled to gain its very own mag in a month or two. Oh yes, and for those of you who've been writing in to comment on the uncanny resemblance between Mike's artwork and that of the great Will Eisner, creator of the Spirit during the 1940s, it's not news either to us or to Mike, people, because Mike was indeed Mr. E's artistic assistant for a couple of years, just prior to his joining our beleaguered little crew, but thanks for noticing. Hmm. So this issue is a few months after the other issues you've read this episode. Right.
1: Right. And again, with the Ghost Rider introduction, like I said, early '70s bikers were big.
0: Yep, and we're going to be talking about that introduction probably in an episode or two. Yep. But back to Man Thing.
1: Yes. Um. So, like I said, whole lot of AIM guys not making it home after this mission.
0: No, no. Between
1: Kazar and Zabu and Man Thing, like they basically take out a small platoon.
0: Right, I mean, Khazar isn't killing anybody, but he's barely stopping Zabu from doing so. Zabu is straight up gutting people, and so is Man-Thing. I mean, Man-Thing is burning to death with his touch. Right,
1: and probably also snapping backs and necks like he did in his early appearances.
0: (laughs) Yeah, because Man-Thing is badass. Uh, Speaking of badass, there's a part on uh, page 12 where he mm-hmm. just passes through a cage. Yeah, yeah. Like, you've caged a Man-Thing. Okay, good for you. Walks through the bars, and they just go through them like jello.
1: Yeah, that's the thing, is Man-Thing is apparently squishy. Squishy.
0: Squishy Man-Thing. No bones.
1: Like, it's like that scene in uh, Terminator 2, where, where the liquid metal Terminator just walks straight through the bars.
0: Right, so either there are no bones in Man-Thing... Or the bones move around when convenient. Yep. Which may be more creepy.
1: <laughs> um, something else to note is uh the end of the issue. Um Barbara Morse expresses her excitement that she can just go back to being a regular scientist again, and no more crazy spy adventures for her, right?
0: Right. She's certainly not going to marry a purple clad archer and found a team of wackos. <laughs>
1: No, clearly she's into this Kesar guy who is so into her that he's willing to bear having to be around the stink of civilization.
0: Yeah, because that's the recipe for a successful relationship. So, okay, I guess we'll talk about the, the, the big thing here. I didn't see Paul's betrayal coming. Maybe I just suck at spotting betrayals because I didn't see um, Ellen's betrayal. Or, is it Helen or Ellen? It's Ellen. Ellen. See, I'm terrible with names today. I didn't see Ellen's portrayal coming in the 1st manting story we talked about.
1: Yeah, I mean, this one, I think, is telegraphed slightly more. Um, not so much in Paul's behavior, because we really don't see much of him in this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but, Barbara kind of acts weird every time he comes up, especially in the middle of the issue. Yeah, and,
0: you know, anytime it's talked about, like, Kesar's like, oh, you must be anxious to rescue your fiancé. She's kind of like,
1: eh. Yeah, and and um, th- there's a sense that even if it's not hinting that there's something up with Paul, th- there are hints that Barbara knows more than what she's telling Kazar at that moment. I mean,
0: it just seems very far-fetched that S.H.I.E.L.D. By the way, this is the first time I think that it's openly stated that she and Paul are both agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yes. Uh, where it's stated that, you know, they're agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I think it's ex- even extreme, even for like Nick Fury, to make a woman pretend to love a man, probably make love to a man, promise to marry a man, just to figure out if he's an AIM mole.
1: That is a bit much, for sure.
0: I mean, I could more easily imagine uh, Nick Fury and Dum Dum Dugan taking him to a dark room, slapping around a bit until he's like, yes, I'm an AIM agent, I'm a mole, please stop hitting me Mr. <laughs> Fury, sir.
1: And, and also, uh, what's also interesting at the bottom of page 8 is that Bobby pulls rank and reveals that she's actually – she outranks Paul. Interesting. Um, you may be my fiancé, Paul, but with Ted Salas gone and Dr. Calvin in a coma, I'm next in command. We go to New York. You're right.
0: She does. So maybe he got – maybe he was just a regular S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. He got tired of her pulling rank all the time. It's like, it's like, honey, can you do the dishes? Actually, Paul, I think you, you'll find if you look at your shield angle, I, I outrank you.
1: <laughs> also, in in some of these close-ups around that page, um, Paul kind of looks like a knockoff Tony Stark. Yeah, like with the hair and the the thin mustache.
0: Yeah, which. You know, that was a common look, I guess, back then. Yeah. It was a stock look. I mean, it's, it's how we know that he is not going, perhaps know that he's not going to be a re- recurring character. And right. later on, when he, like, is revealed to be full-blown evil, he looks, he looks less like Tony Stark.
1: Right. Although, part of me kind of wishes for a Lost Issue prequel, where, sort of in the style of Oliver Queen and Slade Wilson, the, Paul and Tony keep getting mistaken for each other.
0: Yes, because if ever there was a character that fans were demanding to come back, it is Paul Allen. No,
1: no one has ever said that, <laughs> ever.
0: All right, so speaking about page 17, on page 18, the last panel of 18, we have Paul doing exposition saying, when he's, fu- he's shooting at man Thing, he's saying, the bullets, they just sink into him. They don't even phase him. Barbara, Kayser, stop him. We see Paul firing the gun. I think it would have been far more mm-hmm. effective if we saw the bullet sinking in the Man Thing, right? You right. know,
1: <clears throat> I'm wondering if that still might have been a bit much for the code.
0: I think it's a tried and true comic philosophy at this point to show us, don't tell us,
1: right? Right. Other thing on that page is Man Thing bursting through the wall. Yeah. I, I really just want to add a speech bubble there for Man Thing that just says, "Oh yeah." <laughs> Oh yeah! <laughs> Ew. Because he's 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 pulling a Kool Aid. I'm
0: just imagining Man Thing flavored Kool Aid. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that would be like an offshoot of of that would be the Kool Aid version of Slimer High C, right?
0: Sure, sure. I'm just imagining like a a pitcher of swamp water.
1: <laughs> yep, with a with a thin film of moss on the top.
0: Yum. <laughs> on page nineteen, that fourth panel does does Man Thing have pupils?
1: he does like it, there's this sort of almost like a glimmer of humanity underneath the the monster but but it it doesn't match his other depictions
0: yeah i, I i'm not digging it though i, I like the, yeah. i like the big red
1: eyes yeah yeah
0: so do we have anything else to say about this issue
1: um it's fine like it's it wraps things up it, it sort of suggests that nobody was really sure if they were going to do any more with Man-Thing or not. Yeah. Because he just sort of disappears in the explosion.
0: But I think we've shown with these issues that he is a fun character.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I guess if there's a problem with it, it's something that comes up with a lot of Man-Thing appearances, and that's that he tends to get sidelined even when he ought to be a major focus of the story.
0: It's the same reason why Batman has Robin, where or the Lone Ranger had Tonto, it's hard to have a story where the audience knows what's going on when you don't really have anyone for the main character to talk to.
1: Yeah, Or in this case, where your main character exactly. can't talk at all.
0: But, I mean, like we said before, it's not as good as the previous issue.
1: No, um, it's, again, fine. I think
0: we see Manting again when he starts appearing as Steve Gerber writes him.
1: I think the I think his next appearance is maybe the first Steve Gerber, right?
0: Which, um, that's gonna be a lot of fun. Steve Gerber is fun.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, and and just for reference, since we mentioned it on some of the other issues, um, as with the previous Kazar Man Thing story, this one has been collected. Uh, it's in the Essential Man Thing, um, black and white paperback. Um, there was an omnibus Man Thing from 2012, that might be out of print by now. These Kazar stories are collected in both Marvel Masterworks Kazar, Volume 1, and in the trade paperback Mockingbird, Bobby Morse, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. But my recommendation, if you're gonna get it somewhere, go for Volume 1 of Man-Thing by Steve Gerber, the complete collection. That's available in print and digital, um, mm-hmm. and even though it says Man-Thing by Steve Gerber, it does collect these early appearances that give you the origin.
0: Which is good. And, you know, it's, it's yeah. nice to know where Gerber's coming from before things get really insane. Right. I, I'm really looking forward to the Steve Gerber stuff. We'll be
1: getting Howard the Duck.
0: Eventually. Okay. Yep. Anyway, I think that does it for another... Oh, hold on a second. Hey, I'm in I found this book during our last break.
1: Um, it's not bound in human flesh or inked in blood with a human face, is it? No. Good. I've had some bad experiences with those. Trey, I think this might be the Darkhold. That seems unlikely. But don't you see what we could do with this? Get rid of all the world's vampires? No, that'd just be stupid.
0: We could use it to escape!
1: Right. I'll I'll let you experiment with the creepy magic book that's linked to dark, evil gods. Um, And until then, you folks can reach us at tombofideas at gmail.com, you can follow us on Twitter at Tomb of Ideas
0: or our Facebook page, facebook.com/Tomb of Ideas.
1: Looking forward to next episode. We will be covering Uncanny X-Men number forty, Marvel Spotlight number four, Tomb of Dracula number three, and Marvel Team Up number three. And I think that wraps it up for this episode. Once again, I'm Trey.
0: And I'm James. And we'll see you next. And we'll see you next time. Oh, you're gonna say it.
1: I thought I might, but I don't have to.
0: No, that's fine. You say all you want. You, you you go ahead and talk. I'm <laughs> gonna go read a book, because you know, I can do that. <laughs> Until next time, folks.
1: Bye. We'll see you next time. God damn, I always get the last word.
0: You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. Until next time. Members, Exhelsior! <laughs>